everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I back at it again. AJ over then the producer suite or whatever. We got to come up with a cool name for that. The uh, the hot zone. Bat cave. <laughs> the bat cave. All right, bat cave. It is. AJ's sporting a nice new. Uh, what do you call that? Mic Thing, stand. Mic stand. Yeah. It's yeah. really nice. It is very nice. Way nicer than these pieces of junk we have. It so. almost looks like you could control it with a, with, like it's a robot. Sort of like an AI type of situation. Yeah. You've seen those things that, mm-hmm. I don't know, pour, pour your milk or whatever for your cereal? <laughs> I haven't seen that. Well, there's, That's an interesting they're out version. there. <laughs> they're out there. That is good to know. AJ, do you drink a lot of milk? A gallon a day. Okay. A a I, day did I tell you about that patient? No. We had a patient that uh, just for the life of him could not figure out why his sugar was so high. And, uh, you know, I went through drinks like, you know, one by one. I mean, talking like lemonade and juice and sodas and tea. And I mean, just went through the list. I'm like, anything else that you drink? He's like, nope. I asked him like three times. Nope. Finally, at the end of the appointment, he's like, uh, what about milk? Does milk have any sugar in it? I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, remember when I was asking you about drinks and you just, you just, you know, wouldn't list any other drinks? You said, nope, for sure. Yes, milk is a drink, by the way, and it has sugar. And he's, I was like, how much are you drinking, like a glass, two glasses, you know, how often? He's like, he goes, oh, man, at least a gallon a day. <laughs> I, I said, what? <laughs> I'm like, you drink a gallon? I said, no, I'm, you, I said, be for real. He's like, oh, no, I love milk. He goes, I drink at least a gallon. You know those Got Milk commercials? Yeah. He bought in. Oh. Not only bought in, he is the producer. The He's exec- probably got the strongest bones. Oh my gosh. So dense. It's like, I mean, dinosaur bones. But anyways, he stopped drinking milk and guess what happened to his A1C? Just came down faster than you can. He's like, man, who would have ever thought? A gallon of milk. I would be so sick. If I had to drink a sip of milk. I don't, yeah, I, I'm not a milk drinker unless it's in with something. Like cereal yeah. can do that. But yeah. if it's just drinking milk. Ugh. Or maybe if I have a cookie or a brownie. But like my wife, she'll fill up a whole glass, Ooh. just drink the milk. And it's also because I want it to be like right out of the fridge cold. Mm. So the first couple of sips are fine. Anything else, yeah, once it starts to get towards room temperature, no. I've never smelled milk and gone, that smells fresh. <laughs> Every time I smell it, like, this has to be it. This has to be spoiled. Jen, I mean, Jen will be like, no, it's not. What are you talking about? I'm like, no, no, it's definitely spoiled. I mean, you think about the things you drink, like juices, and you can imagine the fruit or you or orange juice, right? Mm-hmm. And then you imagine monster, milk, a monster, <laughs> where the the factory, the laboratory that right. it comes from, and then you imagine milk and then the teats, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't sound. <laughs> AJ, it's the first time the word teats ever been said in this podcast. So that's, <laughs> it probably isn't. That's and that's, the, that's, that's good the news. Unfortunate thing. <laughs> that's great news. So, we're not talking about milk or diabetes or anything like that today. We're here talking about something different. Um, we're going to go through rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this is something we did, I think, November last year, 2020. Um, so, it'll be a little bit of a review um, again, but we're just kind of, we, we split it into two episodes last time. We, we won't do that this time, but we'll kind of go through some of the changes and some of the updates that have been um, a little bit more recent. But uh, yeah, so rheumatoid arthritis, so just to kind of give some background information, um, rheumatoid arthritis is, you know, it's this chronic progressive autoimmune disorder. So we think of things like osteoarthritis, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, a combination of wear and tear and all kinds of other kind of, um, ideologies, pathophysiologies, um, at play. This is a true, like autoimmune disorder, um, that primarily affects the joints. And, uh, you know, it's this interaction between both, you know, genetic component and environmental component, um, and basically just leads to your immune system kind of attacking, um, tissue and cells it's not supposed to, and leads to synovial, uh, inflammation and, um, you know, damage that gets progressively worse over time. Um, patients, um, genetic makeup does play a, a role as far as their, their overall risk of dev- not only developing rheumatoid arthritis in the first place, but also like the severity and how quickly it progresses. And in fact, they've actually identified over a hundred different gene polymorphisms that have been associated with RA. So a lot of different, uh, kind of, you know, potential mechanisms, uh, from a genetic standpoint. But from the autoimmune standpoint, you know, we have our typical um, antigen-presenting cell um, kind of activating their, your T-cells. And in this case, your T-cells, um, by way of interleukin-17, um, will activate osteoclast activity, which leads to um, bone breakdown or destruction. Um, and then from like an activated macrophage standpoint, which can, again, kind of trigger T-cells, um, via um, IL-17 can also um, cause activation of uh, osteoclast, but also through interleukin-1 and TNF-alpha um, can lead to uh, bone matrix degradation and, um, you know, just lead to this, like we said, just breakdown of and joint damage um, that's kind of seen in RA that gets progressively worse. Yep. So, um, and yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll delineate rheumatoid from osteo in a little bit because it, it does matter, of course, how you treat it. Um, and we'll talk about the, the symptoms and the differences, but symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, um, pain and stiffness, of course, the things that you associate with it, um, especially in the joints and primarily uh, in the morning, or at least it can be worse in the morning. Uh, usually it's the hands, wrists, or feet. Uh, there's tenderness, warmth usually swelling around the joint. Uh, it's symmetrical as opposed to being more on one uh, specific joint than the other uh, if there's multiple joints affected. Uh, a lot of times they'll describe prolonged morning stiffness um, after they wake up. It, and it, it's kind of a slow progressing stiffness as opposed to going away very quickly. Um, fatigue, significant fatigue, muscle weakness, um, and then nodules or rheumatoid nodules, which are local swelling um, that can happen even in the heart uh, and the lung. But there are some things that can put you at higher risk um, uh, for rheumatoid arthritis than um, others. It's usually between the ages of 25 to 50. Um, elderly people can still develop it, but the, the highest risk is 25 to 50. More women than men in about a 3 to 1 ratio. Um, having a positive family history of it is going to put you at higher risk and then smoking, and also coffee drinking. So usually we think of coffee of as uh, putting you at lower risk for, for things, uh, but uh, this is not one of those. All the things. All, all the things. At least that's what my wife says. I yeah. don't, I don't, do you drink coffee? Some. Not new as much as I do. Monster Energy, zero sugar, though. So it's fine. true. It's like basically like vitamins in a can. I just never cared for it, so I don't I don't do coffee. I do the little squirts of like caffeine in the yeah. water. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mio stuff. Like, or oh, whatever. yeah, I like Mio, too. Yeah. It's good stuff. Pertinent labs that are of value um, when when kind of initially working up a patient, doing your like differential diagnosis. Um, certain things like rheumatoid factor assay um, that's going to 
show the the presence of a rheumatoid factor antibody in the blood. Um, not seen in all patients with RA. Um, about seventy percent or so of patients that have RA will test positive for that antibody. Um, we also can look at things like the erythrocyte sedimentation rate um, that uh, basically just demonstrates that there's a presence of inflammation um, in the body due to some sort of um, active disease. Uh, and then a lot, a lot of times you'll see that being that level being elevated in different rheumatoid conditions. Things like anti-nuclear antibody, um, assay, um, C-reactive protein, um, which is like an acute phase protein that... Uh, Basically, will increase in the um, in the in the levels will increase during acute inflammation. Um, things like uh, anti citrullinated peptide antibody or ACPA, um, and this is something that uh, is kind of um, just a. Uh, a lab that can in some cases kind of detect early stage um, arthritis. And so, um, you know, when you combine all those on top of your your imaging and um, your other, you know, just patient history and, and all that you know, physical assessment, you know, we can uh, hopefully go through our differential and figure out what what, uh, what the cause of the patient's symptoms are. And so obviously moving forward, we're going to assume it's rheumatoid. Yep. And those are lab values that can give you that idea. There's also clinical presentation, like I, I mentioned before, with uh, the signs and symptoms of rheumatoid. Uh, but you want to make sure you delineate it between osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. And I'll just say osteo and rheumatoid, and you can presume the arthritis at the end. Um, but uh, it's going to matter because they're treated totally differently. So as far as the onset, osteo is usually insidious over many years. It's a it's a long onset. Um, whereas rheumatoid can can be gradual, but it can also be sudden. And it's sometimes in more of a weeks to months period. The stiffness is a big factor. Uh, the duration of the stiffness. I mentioned rheumatoid. Um, the stiffness can last at least an hour, often longer. And it's most pronounced after rest or like when you wake up in the morning. The osteo stiffness is usually just for a few minutes. It's very localized. And uh, you kind of get a short gelling feeling after a prolonged rest. So a little bit different there. The pain in general, with osteo, it's with motion, and that makes sense based on um, kind of the, the pathology of osteoarthritis. With motion, you're going to have more pain. Uh, with prolonged activity, you'll have more pain, and it's relieved by being at rest. Rheumatoid, even at rest, you can still have pain, and it might disturb their sleep. That could be a telltale sign. Osteo is not associated with fatigue, and I mentioned that rheumatoid was associated with fatigue, sometimes severe. Um, a lot of times four to five hours after kind of waking up in the morning. Um, both can have tenderness. Uh, rheumatoid almost always has tenderness. Uh, it's the most sensitive indicator of there being inflammation. Uh, with swelling, osteo does not always have swelling, but an effusion is common. Um, little synovial reaction. Rheumatoid has fusiform soft tissue enlargement. It can also have effusion, um, synovial proliferation and thickening. And it's often symmetric, like I said before, with rheumatoid nodules. With heat, uh, sometimes there's heat with rheumatoid, not really with osteo. Um, and you'll get uh, maybe a mild joint enlargement with osteo, but a moderate to severe enlargement of the joints with rheumatoid. And uh, like I said, important to delineate the two when you're making a diagnosis. And as far as, you know, kind of the criteria to establish the, you know, a scoring system to to push you towards rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there was a criteria that was established, I believe in 2010, I think was the last time or the, when this was updated. But um, 
basically the criteria is if the patient has either a, um, it, based on the positive RF or ACPA lab values, um, and if it's a low positive, then it's a score of two. If it's a high positive, it's a score of three. Um, and then if the patient has a high ESR or CRP level, then they get a, a bonus point, if you will. And then if the symptoms have been going on for six weeks or longer, they get another point. And um, then from there, you look at the joint involvement. So um, if it's two up to 10 large joints, that's a point. If it's one to three small joints, um, plus or minus the large joints, two, four to 10 small joints, three, and greater than 10 joints, um, five points. The max you can get is 10 points. Um, you just take the worst of each area or the worst uh, possible score for each area. And then if it's a six or more points that the patient has after you've kind of added everything up, um, it's indicative of, of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of different kind of assessment tools to assess the actual severity or the, the disease activity itself, you know, whether it's it's high disease activity or moderate, low, whatever, um, or whether or not the patient's in remission. So there's things like the clinical disease activity index, um, there's the disease activity score, there's the patient activity scale, um, there's the simplified disease activity index, the routine assessment of patient index data three or the rapid three. So multiple uh, different uh, scoring systems and tools that you can uh, potentially use. And so um, depending on what studies you're looking at and whatnot, it may be um, different scoring systems that were used to evaluate the patient and kind of um, establish them as candidates in the study, but multiple options available. Yeah. Ready to go through drugs? Let's do some drug stuff. So, um, DMARDs. DMARDs are the most traditional um, uh, treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. It stands for disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Um, and patients with symptomatic uh, rheumatoid arthritis should be started on one of these uh, first. Um, they have various mechanisms of action that can slow the disease process. Uh, they help prevent further joint damage. Uh, with the 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 goal being treatment remission or at least low disease activity where they they're not affected significantly uh, their quality of life, uh, you can give low dose steroids usually the equivalent to less than ten milligrams of prednisone uh, to patients who have a significant disease activity moderate to high when you're starting them on a DMARD. Uh, they call that bridging, and it's just to kind of control their symptoms for a little while while we're waiting on the DMARD to take effect, which can take uh, a little while, which we'll talk about with the specific drugs. Uh, you want to use the lowest effective dose possible for the shortest time possible, um, and interestingly, NSAIDs uh, are a weaker option for bridging in this instance than steroids would be. So our first uh, official DMARD that we'll talk about is methotrexate. Uh, we've talked about this in several other podcasts for various disease states. This uh, has all kinds of different labeled indications, um, but it's basically a uh, folate anti-metabolite um, that's going to inhibit DNA synthesis, repair, cellular replication, um, and it's also going to in, uh, inhibit the enzyme di uh, dihydrofolate reductase. Um, for rheumatoid arthritis, typically we're thinking about doses between 7.5 to 30 milligrams once weekly. Um, can be potentially uh, oral, uh, could be sub-Q, could be IM. There's various formulations available. Um, it does have a box warning for 
hepatotoxicity. So we'll definitely talk about that because the you know, liver toxicity uh, concern was used to be a lot more, uh, I guess, worrisome. And we've gotten a little bit more relaxed with um, with that as, as time has gone on. Uh, but also myelosuppression, uh, mucus um, satitis uh, are also uh, box warnings as well. And uh, it is considered a contraindication during pregnancy. So um, pregnancy category X by the old um, rating system. Uh, and so definitely something we have to be aware of there. Um, adverse effects, GI complaints, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, definitely increased LFTs. And then potentially um, some alopecia can occur and then um, increased uh, risk of photosensitivity. Um, in regards to the LFTs, we do want to check them at baseline, obviously, to make sure that they're not already elevated. And then we want to kind of follow them every two to four weeks for the first three months. Um, and especially, in, you know, when the medication's first being started um, or if there's like a dose increase or something. Once that three-month period's up and it's kind of starting to get more stable, then we can move it out to every eight to 12 weeks uh, for a three to six-month period and then less frequently from there. Um, prior to starting methotrexate, though, we do want to test for TB, uh, Hep B, Hep C um, prior to use. And um, one of the things they used to look for is uh, a liver biopsy. Um, however, now we've kind of reserved that only for patients who have a history of excessive alcohol use or um, current like active Hep B or Hep C infections. Um, and even in that case, I, I don't, I, I would would have to do a poll to see how many people actually are signing people up for a liver biopsy if, you know, if their other labs look okay. Um, but uh, also if a patient has um, elevation of uh, LFTs, you know, that happen more than just one occurrence, if they stay elevated, then it may be um, a reason to, to get a person on a liver biopsy. Um, also for patients who have um, consistently abnormal uh, liver function tests throughout the treatment, obviously, even if they don't have any other pre-existing condition that we want to make sure that we at least consider a liver biopsy in some cases. Um, and then folate supplementation is going to be important because um, that can help to kind of decrease the uh, various adverse effects, including the hematological, GI, um, even hepatic toxicities potentially. And so uh, five milligrams uh, orally once weekly on the day following the methotrexate dose um, is one method, or you can do like one milligram of folic acid uh, on non-methotrexate days. Yeah, so you get a little bit higher dose going six days a week, obviously. Um, but five milligrams once is also uh, perfectly fine. And just remember the one milligram tablets available as an RX. And so make sure you don't just tell the person to get over the counter because they're only going to be getting 0.4, maybe 0.8 if they get a prenatal vitamin. Yep. Which, you know, probably a lot of stuff they don't need in the prenatal vitamins. Right. Right. Um, okay. So next we have leflunamide. Um, so it's going to have, it's another DMARD. It's going to have anti-proliferative and anti-inflammatory effects by inhibiting pyrimidine synthesis. Uh, it has a black box warning for embryo fetal toxicity. So this is also definitely not going to be one to use in pregnancy. Um, and hepatotoxicity as well, which is a staple of the DMARDs. Um, though the uh, fetal toxicity is such that uh, females need to have a negative pregnancy test and use two forms of birth control during treatment. If uh, the patient desires to get pregnant, they have to wait two years after discontinuation. They have to wait two years after discontinuation. It's a long time, right? Unless undetectable levels are reached or they use an accelerated drug elimination procedure. So there's there's things they can take to kind of get it out of their system faster. Um, avoid in pre-existing liver disease. So if the ALT is greater than two times the upper limit of normal and you need to monitor LFTs uh, usually, um, 
monthly for the first six months. Uh, warnings uh, in general, severe infections, so they are at higher risk for infections when they're taking this. It, it affects the immune system. Uh, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which we think of with other drugs like carbamazepine. Um, peripheral neuropathy, hypertension uh, can cause some nonspecific side effects uh, that the patient might notice like uh, nausea and diarrhea, um, rash, headache. Uh, other monitoring that you want to do, they need a tuberculosis screen before starting, CBC with differential, ALT and AST, of course, and then renal function. Um, but if they happen to need an accelerated drug elimination option, there's two. Uh, cholesteramine, 8 grams three times a day for 11 days, and activated charcoal, 50 grams every 12 hours for 11 days. Seems like that, that'd probably be the, the course of action I would choose if I wanted to get pregnant, to be honest. The cholesteramine is not fun to take at all. No? Have you had it? Uh, no, but it looks unpleasant. Mm, it looks, looks like orange juice to me. It looks like gross orange juice, though I think they have other flavors. Might be tang. I th- it might taste like tang. <laughs> might be tang. Might be delicious. Might be tang. Might make I, you an astronaut. I want to say they have like a lemon because I remember there was this. Ugh. I had this one guy who we kept accidentally filling the orange <laughs> one, and you get really upset because there was like you love this lemon. other flavor. It might not be lemon. It was something, but there's another one. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get back to you on that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll think of it. <laughs> Um, another DMAR that's uh, been around for a long time is sulfasalazine. Um, you may remember us talking about this when we went through like ulcerative colitis. But uh, if you remember, sulfasalazine is a prodrug, and so when it gets um, taken and absorbed into the, or reaches the the um, colon, but bacteria basically cleave um, the drug and, and form either uh, two different um, new drugs. So you get sulfapyridine and then five amino salicylate acid, um, and so the in, in regards to like ulcerative colitis, we're trying to get the aminos, um, uh, salicylate that's kind of responsible for helping with the inflammation and whatnot, the, the colon or rectum, whatever. Um, where in this case, we're trying to absorb the, uh, sulfapyrinium moiety and, um, that's what's in, you know, responsible for the anti-rheumatic properties of the drug. Um, so it does have a contraindication of, to a patient who has a true sulf allergy, um, or a salicylate allergy, um, or if they have a, a GI obstruction as well. Um, and then as far as like, you know, rare, but serious warnings, um, severe skin reactions, uh, for example, Steven Johnson syndrome, um, also can lead to, in some cases, uh, to hepatic failure and pulmonary fibrosis. Um, more commonly though, headache, rash, um, dyspepsia, uh, other GI complaints, nausea, vomiting, um, all this, those types of GI complaints can eventually lead to loss of appetite. And even in some cases, anorexia. Um, and it can lead to a folate deficiency if taken long enough as well. Um, Monitoring-wise, CBC, LFTs. Um, and then one thing to kind of at least warn patients about is the fact that it can cause a yellowing, orangish coloration of the skin um, as well as urine. Um, and so the urine is one thing. Skin might be a little alarming um, or a little bit more alarming. But regardless, definitely make sure that you're warning patients about that so they don't get a crazy surprise. <laughs> crazy surprise. Um, so we also have hydroxychloroquine, brand name Plaquenil, probably not anybody out there who hasn't heard of this one after last year. Um, but, uh, it acts by, um, inhibiting locomotion of neutrophils and chemotaxis of the eosinophils. It also impairs complement dependent antigen antibody reactions. And that's how it has its effects on the immune system. Uh, the big one that's kind of the scary one is, uh, can't, uh, as far as side effects go, is it can cause irreversible retinopathy. Um, as well as macular pigment changes. So in certain situations, we may need to do um, ophthalmologic uh, ophthalmologic exams, which I'll talk about in a second. 
um, can cause neuromuscular weakness, cardiomyopathy, bone marrow suppression, as you might expect, like anemias, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia. Um, adverse effects the patient might notice, um, uh, stomach issues, nodule vomiting, diarrhea. Um, it can also cause pigmentation changes, very rare, but it can of the skin and the hair. Um, monitoring, you want to get a CBC because uh, the bone marrow suppression, LFTs. Um, if the patient has risk factors for retinal damage, um, those risk factors might be low body weight, renal or hepatic impairment, then they do need to get eye exams um, at least annually while they're on treatment, which truthfully is less often than I, I thought you might need to have. Uh, but it's, un it's an uncommon issue. Uh, if they don't have risk factors like that, then they need an eye exam at least within five years of starting a Plaquenil and then annually after that. But it's usually used in mild rheumatoid arthritis or as an add-on to a DMARD in more progressive disease. Um, but the onset of action can be pretty delayed, uh, up to six weeks to really get good benefit from it. So a therapeutic failure is only considered when the patient has been on the med for six months without a response um, uh, uh, after six months. So the main advantage is um, compared to a DMARD, lack of myelosuppression, um, uh, hepatic issues not as significant, and um, renal toxicities uh, that are more significant with the uh, more traditional DMARD options. All right. So DMARDs are the agents that have been around quite a while. All of them have some solid time on the books, but we're going to get into our newer agents, our, our biologics, which in the case of rheumatoid is are kind of split into two different groups to keep it as simple as possible. We have our anti-TNF-alpha biologics and then our non anti-TNF-alpha. I remember when I was in school, it must have been 20, I must have been 2014, 2015. We had this one professor teaching an early chemistry class or something, and he was studying TNF-alpha. That was like all he did for his regular job was study TNF-alpha. So I remember that pretty much no matter what, every answer on his, because he only wrote a section of the test, yeah. I think it was in pharmacotherapy, every single answer included the term TNF-alpha. So regardless of what the question was or what the other answers were, as long as you chose the one that said TNF-alpha in it, you got it. It was you his got favorite. It right. And now here we go. Drugs. Drugs out the wazoo for him. Okay. He invented every single one of them. <laughs> yeah. It was all, he's rich now. <laughs> he's no I'm longer joking teaching. about his test questions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first one we'll talk about is um, a very widely used um, agent. So Humira, adalutumab. Um, it is something that's injected subcutaneously. Um, it's going to have, one, all of these are going to have pretty similar response rates. Um, you know, there's some differences between um, agents depending on the studies you're looking at, but for the most part, they're kind of seen as, as being um, or having similar efficacy. Now, um, with this one, it's, it is subcutaneous. Like I said, it's injected every 14 days. Um, the most common kind of uh, complaint for Humira is the uh, localized injection site reaction, which now we have like a citrate-free. So I guess citrate was one of the components of it that was causing a lot of the irritation. Now it's a citrate-free formulation that's um, you know available, and that seems to help a lot with that injection site reaction. Uh, we also have multiple biosimilars that are available. Um, and so just make sure that if a patient's you know, insurance is requiring them to use one or the other, that uh, you're kind of verifying that it is a true interchangeable biosimilar. Um, you can use the uh, purple book by the, um, the CDC and um, you know, verify it that way and make sure that it is something you can just change as a one-to-one -one switch. 
Um, we also have um, Embril is another one that's been around for a while. Um, this one is is a sub-Q shot that's given weekly. Um, same kind of thing, uh, localized injection site reaction tends to be the main side effect people complain about. However, there are some uh, rare cases where they've kind of um, presented correlation between a patient starting Embril and developing this neurologic demyelinating syndrome, such as like multiple sclerosis. Um, again, rare and, and correlation doesn't always obviously uh, prove causation, but it is something that, you know, you got to at least in my opinion, keep in mind. Um, a lot of the uh, clinical trials that have um, been, you know, done with Embril though have, have showed that it does slow disease progression um, to a greater degree than oral methyltrexate alone. Uh, and you'll see as we get into the, the algorithm itself that usually if you're going to use this, you're combining it with methotrexate anyway. Um, for a combo therapy, and you do that with all the TNF alpha inhibitors. Also, uh, some biosimilars available in the market, and um, again, just double check that purple book. Yep. Uh, there's also one that is not a sub Q injection, it's an IV infusion, and that's Remicade, generic is infliximab, uh, but it's given at a dose, it's weight based, three milligrams per kilogram, an infusion um, at zero to six weeks, and then every eight weeks after that. Um, uh, to prevent the formation of antibody response, you're just like Mike said, you're going to want to use methotrexate concurrently. So it's a kind of a, a combo situation there. Um, loss of response may be seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who had a good initial response requiring increased doses or shorter intervals between doses to maintain response. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, infusion reactions acutely um, can be an issue here. Um, symptoms of that might be fever, chills, itching, rash um, that can occur during the infusion or an hour or two after. Um, so to treat that, you might use Tylenol, Benadryl, or steroids, just depending on how this, uh, how severe the symptoms are. Um, but there's biosimilars for this one as well. And sometimes when we go through these um, like biologic type meds, you know, I, I think people tend to zone out because they're like, ah, this isn't common. We're not going to see this much. These things are, are becoming way more common, and um, I think are just going to continue oh, to yeah. be mainstays of of most of these therapies with these type of. Um, pathologies you know what i mean especially if as these biosimilars and whatnot keep coming out then it's going to hopefully cause competition and drive the price down as well which is going to make them even more widely used because right now i think that's a big limiting step right. is the price obviously and they'll just move up and in, in, in the therapy progression yeah. basically you know so we also have uh some pony um we also have um Simzia are, are two other options. Um, so Simpony has sub-Q and IV um, formulations available. Um, and where the sub-Q, you can go monthly. And then the uh, IV formulation, you kind of follow somewhat of a similar path to uh, infliximab. But in this case, it's zero, uh, four weeks, and then every eight weeks after that. Um, and then with the Simzia, you're doing um, every other week. But you can um, do a 400 milligram dose that uh, you're giving every four weeks. So you can kind of prolong that almost to a monthly. Uh, regimen as well so a little bit more convenient there than the other uh, previous options especially if you're wanting to do sub-q at home and not get an infusion um, but looking at kind of all of the different tnf alpha um, inhibitors you know they the box warning that's kind of associated with all of them is the risk of serious infections um, some of which could be fatal um, as well as, you know, some of the warnings we have to watch out for. So, you know, not necessarily common side effects, but definitely things that can 
uh, happen and, and cause issues. Uh, demyelinating disease, like we talked about with Embril, uh, could potentially lower the seizure threshold uh, and, and increase the risk of a seizure, especially if a patient who has history of epilepsy or whatnot. Um, hep B uh, reactivation. Patients that have heart failure, you could get a worsening of, of symptoms. Um, it could lead to hepatotoxicity, especially if you're using it along with um, methotrexate. Uh, you also want to make sure that if you need to give the patient a live vaccine, which nowadays isn't too big of a, a deal since we got rid of Zostavax to replace it with Shingrix, um, but you still have your MMR, you still have um, your varicella, and for younger patients that, that could still come up, but make sure you get the live vaccines either you know before you start this treatment or um, waiting until you're coming off of these biologics. Um, always want to get a TB test before starting treatment, um, as well as kind of assessing CBC, LFTs, um, looking for the uh, Hep B assessment, so looking for a surface antigen and a core antibody as well. You may even want to look at a surface antibody to see if they need to be vaccinated towards Hep B. Um, and then, like I said earlier, for some of these, like, you know, we have the option to use them as monotherapy, but a lot of times if the person can tolerate methotrexate, especially since a lot of times that's what they're on is monotherapy initially, if they're getting some improvement but not full remission, then these are going to be added on to the methotrexate uh, if, if the person can tolerate it. Sometimes you'll see them added on to other things like lefutamide, um, but methotrexate's usually the, the go-to if, if possible and if the patient can uh, tolerate it. Yep. Cool. So that's the TNF alpha blockers, right? Yep. So there are some more biologics that um, do not act on TNF, and they are aptly named the non-TNF uh, biologics, but they have various mechanisms of action. The first um, is Orencia, uh, generic is a beta sept. Uh, thinking back to your immunology classes, uh, it inhibits T-cell activation because it binds to CD80 and CD86 on antigen-presenting cells. Uh, blocking the CD28 interaction between antigen-presenting cells and T-cells. So that's how it works. Um, in patients who did not have an adequate response to a TNF inhibitor, about half had a clinical response to a beta-sept. So there's a trial called the AMPLE trial, A-M-P-L-E. It was a head-to-head -head trial. Um, uh, Arencia uh, added two stable methotrexate dose showed similar efficacy and adverse effects to Humira plus methotrexate. Uh, this was in patients who were biologic naive, um, who had an inadequate response to methotrexate monotherapy alone. Um, so that's good for Orencia. There are some adverse effects, uh, headache, uh, dizziness, cough, back pain, dyspepsia, UTIs, um, can even have some extremity pain. Uh, but as far as getting it approved, that ample trial was was a good thing. And did you mention the part about the one half of the patients yes. who did? Okay, good deal. I think that's important when we get to the actual treatment algorithm. Right. So there's been some changes there, some at least push towards recommendations. Right. Um, we also have rituximab, uh, which is something that's going to deplete CD20 um, um, B cells and uh, hopefully do at least um, slow the progression of uh, the RA. Um, it is going to be a possible option for patients who have failed methotrexate, um, you know, and also a TNF-alpha inhibitor. Um, and it's given as a, a two-dose series infusion. Um, so you give 1,000 milligrams uh, two weeks apart. Um, and then because there is a high 
likelihood of infusion reactions. Um, it's given with a corticosteroid. Um, so for example, like methylprednisolone, 100 milligrams can be given 30 minutes prior to the rituximab um, infusion. And hopefully that will um, lower the, the incidence and severity of the infusion reaction if one occurs. Um, patients uh, are often going to be on methotrexate and, and ideally will be. Um, the, the combination is really what we've seen in studies to provide the best therapeutic outcome. And so the, the, how often they have to actually repeat um, this course of rituximab is kind of variable amongst patients. Um, so it's it's not something we can tell patients for, you know, definitive fact that, okay, in six months you'll have to come back. It kind of just depends on, you know, reactivation of their disease, how long they stay in remission, if they even reach remission, all that good stuff. Yep. Uh, the last non-TNF-alpha biologic is Actimra. Uh, the generic is tocilizumab, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Nailed it. Remember that one, because it'll come up near the end um, in the recommendations, and, and I'll tell you why in a second. But it attaches to IL-6 receptors, um, preventing the cytokine from interacting with the IL-6 receptor, and that's its mechanism of action. Um, uh, it's used in moderate to severe, moderate to severe RA who uh, failed or didn't respond to one or more DMARDs. So there's a trial called the ADACTA trial, and uh, patients with severe rheumatoid arthritis who couldn't use methotrexate uh, found Actemra by itself more efficacious in symptom improvement than Humira monotherapy. So that's a big deal. And that'll uh, come into play uh, near the end when we're talking about kind of how the, the the algorithm or the stepwise approach to, to where you start and where you end up. I like it too because if you do have that patient who because if you look at the algorithm, it's like plus or minus methotrexate for a lot of these. So if you do have that patient that just can't tolerate methotrexate or yep. you don't want to put them on one of the non-biological DMARDs, you know, the, we have some data that kind of guides us one way or the other. So I, you know, that's helpful. Yeah. I like helpful data. I love helpful data. Also like when trials have names so that you can just remember. Uh, even if so it's convenient. just, I mean, it's adacta, like that's a made up word, but it works, you know? Is it though? Might be in real word in another language. Well, I guess I'll we'll find out that later. while you're talking about Janus kinase inhibitors. Janus kinase inhibitors. So Zeljans is the uh, drug you're probably the most familiar about or familiar with um, in this class. So this is something that's been around for uh, quite a while now. Um, it does carry a box warning for serious infections, um, including tuberculosis, fungal infections, viral infections, bacterial infections, um, and even potentially increases the risk of lymphomas. So, um, also can, uh, th- there's a risk of GI um, perforation. There's a risk of increased LFTs. Um, it has not been studied in patients that have a baseline creatinine clearance less than 40. Um, so, we, we don't necessarily know if it can cause harm or be perfectly fine in patients with uh, kidney disease, especially when you start getting into the stage three and up. Um, now, if a patient has, um, a need for a live vaccine, same kind of thing. Like the rest of these, we knew how to start that right before, you know, we give the live vaccine before starting treatment or um, after treatment's been, you know, completed or, or uh, at least de-escalated. Um, adverse effects, uh, upper respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, diarrhea, headache, hypertension, increased lipids, all kinds of uh, stuff that we got to worry about. Um, we do want to monitor CBC lipids um, at baseline and then uh, four to eight weeks later, um, followed by every three months. And then we want to check LFTs at baseline and then just kind of periodically uh, after that to make sure we're not getting a, a bump. Um, 
I will say patients of Asian descent do like statistically have an increased frequency of adverse effects. Um, and so that's something to kind of keep in mind. Um, it's available as an immediate form, immediate release formulation, which is just a five milligram tablet that's taken twice a day. And it's also has uh, an extended release formulation. that's 11 milligrams once a day. Um, when switching, basically, if you have a patient who's on five milligrams um, and they want to switch to the XR, just wait until, you know, the after you've completed your both doses for that day. The next morning when they go to take their, you know, normal you know, first dose of the five milligrams, just start the XR at that point and then vice versa with um, if you're going the other way. Um, it is a CYP3-4 substrate, so you got to be careful with inducers. Um, and, and if you give it with a CYP3-4 inhibitor, even a moderate inhibitor, um, the recommendation would be to do 5 milligrams once a day of the immediate release because that's going to make it hang around in the system longer and, and basically turn into that 10 milligram dose. Um, and then if the patient uh, has a strong CYP2C19 inhibitor, same concept. And then price, price, price. All these, you know, biologics and, you know, all this good stuff definitely have a lot of uh, uh, issues because of how expensive they are. But this one's like, I think I checked just recently, it's like $200 a a day, basically, if you buy the two tablets a day for the um, immediate release formulation. Right. And of course, you'd never pay for that yourself. You'd get patient assistance or insurance to pay for it. And they deserve to pay. Mike, let me ask you. Yeah. Did you take Latin in high school? No. No? Did you ever take it in college? No. What'd you take, Spanish? Yeah. Gotcha. And I barely did. I was terrible at that, too. So, adacta is, okay. is not a word by itself, but um, ad acta, mm-hmm. ad space acta, is pops up in a Latin figure of speech. I won't say the whole figure of speech because I'll, I'll get made fun of or something, but <laughs> it's in there, and effectively, the figure of speech means to, uh, to consider the matter closed or finished. Hmm. Like to put something to bed. Nice. You know, so adacta was like... We're putting Humera to bed. Yeah. That's a a flexor. Yeah. I like it. That's what they did. That's good stuff. I feel like AJ came up with that. (laughs) Think AJ came up with that? If AJ comes up with a trial, it's going to be something like that. (laughs) It'll be like the other other drug's name and like just smashed or something like that. Trash. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, so we have other uh, Janus kinase inhibitors. uh, Baricitinib, which is Illumiant. Wow. It sounds like Oliphant, which is a nerdy thing. Um, You're but full of them today. I'm, I'm full of something. Um, yeah, but it's it's an oral tablet. Janus kinase one and two inhibitor came out in 2018. Um, moderate to severe uh, active rheumatoid arthritis who uh, did not have an adequate response to a TNF inhibitor can be used alone or in combo with methotrexate or uh, non biologic DMARDs. Um, it shouldn't be used, of course, with another JAK inhibitor, um, biologics, or other potent immunosuppressives like azathioprine or cyclosporin. Uh, but yeah, another jack, as they, they call it in the business. Um, our third option in this class is um, uh, Rinvoke, and it is approved as of August 2019. Um, it's a 15 milligram capsule. It's taken once daily, um, and it does not have any like um, renal dose adjustments in the package insert, although it hasn't been studied uh, in patients with an EGFR of less than 15. But it's, you know, worth Zelgen's, it was less than 40. So if you do have a patient with some renal dysfunction, obviously this might be a better option. Um, and in the Select Beyond trial, um, Rinvoke plus methotrexate um, was compared to Humira plus methotrexate. And uh, basically, um, Rinvoke was superior, improving the signs, symptoms, and physical function of the patients with RA. 
Um, however, it did have higher incidences of patients developing herpes zoster infections as well as increased levels of um, creatinine, creatinine um, phosphokinase. And so, um, you know, the adverse effects may be something to consider. Um, and then when we look at these, like this class as a whole, uh, we want to make sure that if a patient is first being put on one of these agents, if their absolute uh, lymphocyte count is less than 500, or if their hemoglobin is less than eight, or if their absolute neutrophil count is less than a thousand, we don't start these medications. Uh, they also have increased risk of malignancy, increased risk of thrombosis, um, and there's even some data that shows the increased risk of death with uh, patients taking Zeljans who are 50 years of age or older um, that have one or more cardiovascular uh, risk. So, as of a couple weeks ago, um, so officially in September 2021, the FDA put out like a special alert um, saying that due to extensive risks, uh, which we kind of mentioned above, that uh, the patients must have tried and failed at least one TNF-alpha inhibitor uh, prior to using any of the genus kinase inhibitors. Um, they do say that the data that they used to kind of come up with that was based on Zelgen's um, trials, but because the other two agents are in the same class, have similar mechanisms, that um, they assume we'd have that same risk um, with mm. that group as well. And so uh, when we get to the treatment options, you'll see that this is one that we kind of push towards the the end and, and try after we've uh, exhausted some of our other options. That's hot off the presses. Yep. Man, it's no good for the jack inhibitors, huh? Nope. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Okay, so that's all the drugs. Yeah, that's now let's all we put got. them together. What let's are we gonna do? Together. You want to talk about some of these trials before we go into it? Yeah, so we have a few different uh, studies that have looked at some, you know, comparative treatment options. So there was this study called the uh, the C CSP five five one. Uh, RACATS trial, um, and it was triple therapy of methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and hydroxychloroquine versus embryol plus methotrexate, and basically showed a non-inferior clinical benefit. So if you have a patient who, you know, the, the cost of the biologics is really the, the rate-limiting step here, then um, triple therapy may be an option. I have seen actually some patients at our clinic that get put on this by rheumatoid um, or, um, in you know, they just, it's just a cost thing. You know, we try to get them on a biologic that may be more effective, but in this case, um, you know, we, we do have some cheaper options. There was also the, uh, uh, trial, which was triple therapy of methotrexate, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine, uh, versus infliximab plus methotrexate. Uh, the infliximab plus methotrexate did have superior, um, benefit and symptom relief at 12 months. However, once they hit the 24-month follow-up, the statistical difference was no longer seen and they were um, considered to be non-inferior. So I guess initially it will help, but um, you know, over time, the triple therapy kind of catches up to it. Um, there's also been a lot of like indirect comparisons um, through various randomized trials. Uh, there was a 2011 um, meta-analysis that was um, done that basically suggested um, patients receiving Embryol, Humira, um, uh, Golimumab, and uh, had statistically significant lower rates of withdrawal um, due to adverse effects compared to infliximab. So infliximab does seem to be the one that has a little bit more adverse effects, probably that infusion site reaction. Um, and then the increased risk of serious infection associated with infliximab, Humira, um, and then uh, citralizumab um, did not 
show it's you know to be as, to the same extent with uh, the embril or galibab. Can't say that word at all. Um, can p- compared to placebo or traditional DMARDs, um, and so the the first three drugs I mentioned, those are going to have higher uh, infection risk. And so if that's the biggest concern, then you know pick one of the other two options, the embril or I'm gonna try it again, galibab. <laughs> <laughs> perfect nailed it nailed it it's fantastic um okay so we're gonna wrap it up and put a bow on it for you to give you some um kind of an algorithm to go down um or at least some thoughts of where to go with therapy when certain things aren't working so if a patient has uh dmr therapy monotherapy uh, but they still have moderate or high disease activity despite that um then you can use a dmr combination either double or triple therapy, or add um, uh, a TNF inhibitor, a non-TNF biologic, or tofacitinib specifically. Zeljans. Zeljans with methotrexate if possible. And the reason why they only mentioned Zeljans like in the um, guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology is they were done in 2015. They were last updated, and so Zeljans was the only drug in that class mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so when the new guidelines come out, uh, I'm sure they will hopefully kind of separate the data with those uh, Janus kinase inhibitors. But for now, Zildjian is what we got. Yep. Um, So some other kind of recommendations that they uh, will throw out is that if a patient has moderate to high disease, um, if they have been on a TNF-alpha inhibitor as monotherapy, that we would want to add one or two DMARDs um, if they're currently not on a DMARD. So they can, if they're not on methotrexate, try to add that to it. Um, And then if you need to switch to a different therapy, consider switching to a non-TNF-alpha biologic over switching to another TNF-alpha inhibitor. So basically switching that non-TNF-alpha biologic instead of just going to another agent in the same class. And it also specifically says that if you have, when you do switch, to actually go with one of the other um, non-TNF-alpha biologics, not the Janus kinase inhibitor, um, that one's going to be saved for last. And then if a patient has tried two um, or more uh, sequential TNF-alpha inhibitors, then you want to consider switching to the non-TNF-alpha biologic. Again, doing that before you switch to Zeljans. Yep. Uh, and lastly, if they still are having problems despite one or more TNF inhibitor and one or more non-TNF biologic, uh, sequentially, not at the same time, consider another non-TNF biologic, with or without methotrexate, um, as the first option before Zeljans. Uh, then Zeljans after the second non-TNF biologic. Yeah. In patients in remission, don't, this is just kind of a note, don't discontinue all their RA therapies but you can consider tapering therapy and see how they do. Yep. So let's talk about some like specific kind of comorbidities or specific like patient situations um, real quick to kind of close with. So if you have a patient that has, for example, latent TB, um, then, you know, you can use a biologic um, or Zildjian's, but you have to do that after one month of treatment for latent TB, um, which now the guidelines for latent TB have also updated and stuff. So they, I'm sure we'll update that with the new, rheumatoid arthritis guidelines whenever they come out and then um, active TB then basically you need to complete the treatment for active TB before starting a biologic um, or Zeljans. Um, if a patient is is pregnant or breastfeeding, uh, basically the two biggest ones we need to avoid are methotrexate and leflutamide. Um, those are going to be the biggest uh, potential you know, risk of um, 
teratogenic activity. Mm -hmm. Um, if a patient has heart failure, then we want to, and we need a biologic, we want to prefer, uh, or we prefer a non TNF alpha inhibitor. Remember the TNF alpha inhibitors have a tendency to uh, potentially worsen heart failure symptoms, especially if you get into, um, like the New York heart failure, um, symptoms of three and four. That's really when we start seeing issues with TNF alpha inhibitors for sure. Um, patients that have a uh, history or active skin cancer, um, whether it's um, uh, melanoma or non-melanoma, um, we do recommend DMARDs over biologics or um, Zildjans because they can potentially increase the risk of, especially with Zildjans, can increase the risk of uh, certain malignancies. Um, and then if a patient has uh, any kind of previously treated lymphoproliferative disorder, um, they recommend to use rituximab in that case. Um, if a patient has hep C infection, even if it's active, um, as long as their like uh, LFTs or, or liver doesn't show any contraindications to one of these options, they don't have any restrictions, and you can kind of treat them as if they um, are a patient without hep C. Um, if they have untreated chronic hep B or um, treated chronic hep B that's uh, you know with a child P score of uh, class B or higher, um, biologics are not going to be recommended because you could reactivate that hep B and cause um, severe damage, furthering uh, the damage to the liver. Um, however, if it's a hep B infection that's that's been treated um, and uh, or receiving treatment, then you don't have any restrictions. Um, or if it's a patient that has previous serious infection, then combination DMARD um, or abatacept over a TNF-alpha inhibitor seems to be the preferred option. Nice. Yeah. So anything else we miss? We did it in one episode. I'm sure we missed a ton of stuff, but it's good. It's all right. We'll call it a day. Yeah, not bad. We got our, uh, our, our live fact checkers report, 99% uh, true today. <laughs> Mike, you said the oh boy. purple book was from who? You tell me, AJ. I think it's uh, you said the CDC. Uh, I did say that. Survey says that is incorrect. It's from the FDA. FDA. Nice. I'm such an idiot. Thank you, AJ, for keeping me honest. F FDA Purple Book. I think what? I said that to my PAs too. So, what book does the CDC have? I don't think they have. They have no. The, the, I think the, all the not FDA. A colored book. Oh, all the, yeah, all the colored books are FDAs. But then, yeah, I guess CDC, CDC just has like CDC has pamphlets. You know, yeah, online pamphlets. I guess. Nah, I'm more of a pamphlet guy. That's why I said that. I'm a big, big pamphlet guy. They need a book then. CDC yeah, books book. are way too, you know, cumbersome. Anything else? That's it. Yeah. Everything Am else I the was only one perfect. That said anything wrong? I mean, we really think Cole would say <laughs> no. anything wrong. Yeah. This is an outrage, AJ. How would you? How could you do this to me? You know, I have a very fragile ego. <laughs> Um, all right, man. Well, so thank you, AJ. Thanks for being here again, as always. Um, and guys, thank you for listening. Um, really appreciate the support. I hope you guys are still enjoying the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions for us, definitely reach out over email. Um, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, you know, we'll do our best to get back to you as, as quick as we can. Um, and you know, if you have any, uh, questions that you want to go answer or ask over text, then uh, our, the number will be in the show notes as well. You can send a text to that number. Um, check out the Patreon account if you uh, haven't already. Um, hopefully, if you guys are more A-type and like more lecture-style formats um, to study with, then uh, check that out, and that helps us to keep buying cooler equipment and um, making the show better for you guys. So really appreciate the support there. And, um, you know, thanks for uh, staying with us for this long. Um, we're gradually getting up to episode 200 so we'll have to be thinking of something cool to do for that yeah we had and, uh, uh, dr word on for yeah 100. we'll just bring him back for 200 it'll be <laughs> fine there you go but uh yeah thank you guys so much and um we'll see you next time have a great night